Turn in your Bibles to the book of Amos, chapter number 9. Amos, chapter number 9. And uh, not just because of all the festivities, what a blessing it was to be in the house of the Lord today. Amen. Isn't it good that the Lord meets with us? Why would He want to meet with us? Amen. Yet, uh, I, I've never understood that. Why would He want to take the time to meet with us? I got a call from a preacher friend of mine this past week, and he said, uh, he said, hey, listen, I was supposed to call you a day or so ago. It slipped my mind, but he said, a, a mutual friend of ours wanted me to call you and invite you. Governor Lee is uh, going to meet with a bunch of preachers up in Wartburg, and uh, they want you to come and, and be there and be a part of it. And uh, I told my friend, I said, listen, if the governor wants to meet with me, he just needs to call my office and make an appointment because I, I don't I don't have time just to be seeing any and everybody. And uh, he sort of laughed, but he said, ah, well, yeah, but, I, you know, I want you to come and everything. And um, I was driving up to Wartburg. I did go to the meeting, and uh, I texted my buddy that was there already. I said, how's it going? Because I was late. I said, how's it going? He said, man, it ain't a meeting. It's a Zoom call. I said, he ain't here. And uh, I told him, I said, well, of course he isn't here. And he said, what do you mean, of course? I said, because why would he want to meet with us? Somebody say amen to that. He, he don't want to meet with us. Amen. I ain't never been a politician wants to hear from his constituency. And uh, but he said, uh, you know, I knew he wasn't going to be there because why would he want to meet with us? And then my heart was smitten as I thought about the Lord and his goodness and grace. And to think that he'd want to meet with us. Why would he want to meet with us? Amen. But yet he shows up every Sunday, don't he? God's people show up with their hearts open, submitted to the Word of God. And I just praise his name for his goodness. Amos chapter number 9. And unless the Lord does something I'm not expecting, this will be the last in our series through the book of Amos. I've enjoyed preaching through the book of Amos. I've got a lot of help from it, and I trust that there's some folks that have been helped likewise as we have preached through this often neglected portion of the Word of God. And that's a real tragedy. I hope if there's nothing else that you come away from this study with, it is an appreciation for how much glorious truth there is in the book of Amos. Uh, How there's some nooks and crannies and corners of the Word of God that we often don't explore Uh, And we do that to our great detriment because when we get in the Word of God, when we study it in the context, and when we study it in an applicable way, a meaningful way, we find that all through the Word of God, man, there's rich truth for all of us. And so I hope you've been helped by it. I know I certainly have. And uh, we'll just pray about what the Lord will have us to do. Next, I don't know. There's 11 other minor prophets, and uh, and then there's there's 65 other books of the Bible, Brother Charlie. So we'll find something to preach on. Amos chapter number nine, beginning in verse number one. This is the last vision that Amos sees, and uh, listen to how it is described before us. Amos chapter number nine, verse number one says, "I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, and He said, Smite the lintel of the door, that the posts may shake." Cut them in the head, all of them. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away. He that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, thence shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. Though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. Though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent, He shall bite them, and though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword, and it shall slay them, and I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. 
The Lord God of hosts is He that toucheth the land, and it shall melt, and all that dwell therein shall mourn, and it shall rise up wholly like a flood, and shall be drowned as by the flood of Egypt. It is He that buildeth His stories in the heavens, and hath founded His troop in the earth. He that calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is His name. Are ye not as the children of the Ethiopians unto me, O children of Israel, saith the Lord? Have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. For lo, I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a seed. Yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord, that doeth this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Let's pray together. Father, what a blessing that it is to be in your house of all the great privileges and honors that we've enjoyed today and that I have enjoyed today. The greatest privilege is to stand behind this pulpit in your house and to preach your word. I pray, Father, that you would open each heart. I pray that you'd push the distractions of the world, of the devil, of the flesh out of our mind that there may be room, Father, for these few moments to have our heart arrested and fixed upon You. And Lord, that You may deal with us freely and fully with Thy Word. I pray that each heart would be touched in accordance with Thy will. And Father, that we would leave this place more surrendered unto You, looking more like Jesus Christ and closer in fellowship with You. We'll be sure to thank You for it. Lord, we do love You. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in Amos chapter number 9, the prophecy opens uh, with a vision that Amos is given of the Lord standing upon an altar. I say upon an altar because I'm going to give you my opinion here in a little while of which altar it is. We very often when we read the Word of God, we think of certain things and make assumptions. As you read this passage, it might be uh, tempting to assume that that altar is the brazen altar in Jerusalem. Might be, uh, it might be tempting to assume later on in verse 11 when it talks about the tabernacle of David that it's talking about the tabernacle of worship in the Old Testament. But when we read the Bible carefully and clearly and concisely, we find the answer as it truly is. And so when we read this passage, I want to preach to you on this thought tonight, the Almighty and the altar. The Almighty and the altar. And our passage really, plainly to me, divides itself into three portions. Three glimpses, we might say, of certain promised events. The first, in verses 1 through 4, is a glimpse of retribution. 
God is destroying the idolatrous nation. He calls it the sinful kingdom. See, sin always has a price. Always. And sin has never gotten away with it. It always finds you out. You might think you've gotten away with it. You might have hidden it from most eyes. But God knows about it. Not only that, that sin itself is endeavoring, it is seeking, it is striving to be known amongst others. It will find you out. Then the second thing we find is a vision of renunciation, a glimpse of renunciation. There are certain things that God had said about Israel that He said, I'm not going to say that about it anymore. Certain things I've promised them, and I've not broken my promise. They have broken this covenant. And because of that, there are certain, uh, retro, uh, there are certain uh, implications and there are certain ramifications uh, for the way that they've lived. But I'm glad that the Lord don't leave it there. Now, let me say this. There might be things we take for granted that we shouldn't take for granted. I think we've learned that in the past year, haven't we? Man, there's things that we just take for granted that we ought not take for granted. I think as as God's people in America, we have always took for granted we'd be able to worship freely. But that's not always been the case. And it's not always been the case in the past year that we could do so without worrying whether there would be some sort of of illegal ramifications for what we're doing. There are certain things we take for granted. Let me say about the goodness of the Lord, and the, the Lord is good. But there are certain things we take for granted and we say, well, God would never put me through that, or God would never let this happen, or God would never let that happen. But I think when we see this portion, verses 5 to 10, of renunciation, we're reminded that uh, there might be some areas of our life that as God desires and attempts to purge us of sin, that He allows some things into our life. But I'm glad God don't leave us there, because in verses 11 through 15, we have a glimpse of restoration. I'm glad God's always trying to get us back where we ought to be. He's not just throwing us away. He's always trying to get us back where we ought to be. If I had my way in dealing with people's lives, man, everybody would be smitten. I'd smite everybody. I'd go on a smiting rage. I'd smite you and, and the person next to you and behind you. and I'd probably get smited myself. I'd get in the way and I'd smite myself. I'm saying this, God is not like I am and I'm thankful God's always trying to restore us, and I'm thankful for that this evening. So let's consider these three portions of our text, and let's see what we can learn about the Lord. You know, when you study the Old Testament, and the prophets in particular, uh, the uh, covenant theologian would seek to have us dismiss Israel's role and the distinct proprietary nature of God's relationship with them. In other words, uh, some folks would have us just pretend like God treats the church like Israel, and that's not true. And then there are some, the hyper-dispensationalists would tell us we ain't even got no business in the Old Testament. Stick to the epistles of Paul because that's all that matters to us. But I don't accept that either. Because here's the reality. The church is not Israel. This was written to Israel. The church is not Israel. Israel is not the church. But the same God that is Lord over all is rich unto all. And there are certain things about His character and behavior that we find here that we'll find to be true in our life in this day as Gentile Christians in the New Testament church age. So notice with me a few simple truths out of this passage. And then, and we are, by the way, going to have fellowship. We weren't going to have fellowship, but we got half a cake. And it's a big half. And so, and we got tea. And we ain't going to let that go to waste around here. Don't you know there's hungry kids in Africa ain't got no sheet cake? So we're going to, that's right, Brother Fred, so we're going to eat that cake tonight. So we are going to have a time of fellowship, and I'm going to try to hasten my sermon in light of that. Notice with me verses 1 through 4, and in particular, let's notice verse number 1. 
Word of God says, I saw the Lord standing upon the altar. And He said, Smite the lintel of the door that the posts may shake and cut them in the head, all of them. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away, and he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Now isn't it interesting when you notice the intensity that has taken place, the increasing progressive intensity of the visions that Amos has received. He's not seeing visions about a fire anymore. He's not seeing visions about locusts. He's not seeing visions about plumb lines and baskets. He's not merely getting poetic imagery and language that is descriptive. But he sees the very Lord, the God of glory Himself, exacting judgment because of the sin of the people. I think if we read this in accordance with the verses at the close of chapter number 8, we'll get a little bit of an understanding of which altar is being talked about. Do you remember the end of the message last week? I don't know if you remember it, but verse 14 of chapter 8 says this, "...they that swear by the sin of Samaria..." Now, that language is talking about that golden calf. When he says, swear by the sin of Samaria, they didn't swear in the sense of saying, I swear by unrighteousness. But the sin of Samaria was the golden calf worship that took place. So God descriptively calls that golden calf Samaria's sin. And He says, they that swear by the sin of Samaria and say, thy God, O Dan, which was another city given over to idol worship, calf worship, thy God, O Dan liveth, and the manner of Beersheba liveth. And we talked about that phrase, manner of Beersheba. A manner is the way that you conduct yourself. A manner is the way that you talk and the way that you walk. And what's being spoken about here was a path, an idolatrous hallway, a path, a grove of sorts that they had in Beersheba where they had all of their false gods set up. And at the end of this row of false gods would be an image of this golden calf. And so the people in the northern kingdoms would say the manner of Beersheba or the pathway, the idolatrous worship and way of worship of Beersheba liveth. Here's what God says about them. says, even they shall fall and never rise up again. What's Amos beholding at the close of chapter 8? He's beholding all of the various idols of the northern kingdom. He said there's folks that look at this golden calf and say that this golden calf is alive. They say the God of Dan, the idols in the city of Dan are living. They say that the way of Beersheba, this uh, temple of idolatrous worship, this pathway of pagan worship is alive and is living. But God has said that those people and their idolatry will be destroyed. It will fall and it will never rise again. And almost in unbroken theme, he goes in verse number 1 of chapter 9 and says, I was looking at that altar. I was looking at that altar, Brother Charlie, in Samaria, and I saw the Lord standing upon that altar. And you say, Preacher, how do you know that that's the, uh, the altar that it's talking about? Because the description that is given here describes this altar as being inside the temple. The brazen altar in Jerusalem, Brother Charlie, wasn't inside any structure. It was positioned outside in the court area. And so when he says, I was standing, I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, and he says to smite the lintel of the door, he's not talking about the brazen altar in Jerusalem. He's talking about the sinful altar at Bethel. What he sees is the Lord standing upon the very place, listen now, the very place of their idolatry and tearing it down from shingle to tile. 
You know what I find here in this vision of retribution? I find that God judges sin. In fact, God will get to the very heart of sin. In fact, you know what God will do? God will climb up on top of your sin and tear it down from the roof downward. God loves you and I so much that He's willing to go to the place where our sin lives and deal with it and address it and destroy it. Now, isn't that in keeping with His nature? Because what exactly did He do on the cross of Calvary if He didn't go to the place where our sin lived, Brother Charlie, become sin for us and tear down the power of sin that we might be delivered by His grace? Here's what we find when we read this verse. The first thing I notice is that sin is judged, listen now, without excuse. You know, the Bible talks about in the book of Matthew a parable of a, uh, uh, a king whose son was getting married and that uh, as his, uh, the wedding feast for his son was taking place, all the various attendants of that wedding came and they were all given a set of ceremonial clothes, Brother Charlie, they were to wear as they participated in this great feast. But there was one fellow there that refused the clothes that were given to him. Now you might say, Preacher, how do you know he refused those clothes? Because everybody else had them on. But he refused those clothes that were given to him. And the Bible goes on to describe in that parable how that the king came by and saw this man, that he was without these clothes that had been offered to him. And he asked the man why he would have nerve enough to show up at this feast and to dishonor him and to dishonor his son by refusing and rejecting these ceremonial clothes. And the Bible says about that man that he spoke not a word of Charlie. He didn't have anything to say. You know why? Because the clothes had been offered to him. They'd been paid for. They'd been provided. Brother Fred, he he just was too stubborn and too willful to put them on. Because of that, he stands there and has no excuse for his rebellion and his obstinance. You know, it's a reminder to us that there's going to come a day we're going to have to stand before God. And on that day, we'll stand there without excuse. Without excuse. God does not ask the idolatrous worshipers at Dan or Beersheba or Bethel or Samaria to explain themselves. He does not give them fair warning, for He's already been giving them fair warning all throughout the book of Amos and much longer than that. And now the time has come for the final hammer stroke and it's not an angel and it's not a prophet and it's not a preacher and it's not a priest, but it is God Himself standing on the place of their sin and saying the time of reckoning has come. You know, there's going to come a day you and I are going to stand before Him. Now, somebody's going to say, but preacher, I'm under the blood. Can I show you something interesting here? You notice what it says in verse 1? It says, I saw the Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, standing upon the altar. But Charlie, that's not the word Jehovah. So who is that talking about? It's talking about the Master. It's talking about the Lord. It's talking about not Jehovah in the sense of the Godhead, but it's talking about the other one that we call Lord, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Amos says, I saw the Lord Jesus Christ standing upon that idolatrous altar and crying and calling for its destruction. Those of us that are saved, we'd say, but preacher, I'm under the blood. I'm not going to stand at the great white throne judgment. No, you're going to stand someplace probably more terrifying in some ways. You're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to have to give an account for the things that we've done in our life. When I read this passage, I notice first off the place that the Lord stood. He stood upon the very seat, the very location of their sin, of their idolatry. And I think this is to imply that they had no excuses that they could offer. What was it going to say? That altar shouldn't have even been there. There God stands upon it and says the time of reckoning has come. 
The top of the brazen altar in Jerusalem, you know, was a place of pardon. It's where the blood would be, would be shed and the sacrifices would be given. It's where, Brother Charlie, those sacrifices would be consumed by that fire that would burn continually 24 hours a day. And it was meant as a place of pardon. But they had rejected that altar. And they had built their own altar. You know, when a man's trying to get to heaven through his own works, that's what he's doing. He's rejecting the Lord's altar. He's building his own altar. That's what Cain did uh, way back in Genesis chapter 4. He rejected God's altar, tried to make his own altar. The Israelites had rejected God's altar. Now listen, it's the place where sacrifice was made. But Israel, having rejected the sanctioned brazen altar in Jerusalem, the Lord chose the sinful Bethel altar to be a place of punishment. And it's a reminder of this. We have something to avail ourselves of. I'm talking to saved people tonight. I'm saying this. As saved people, somebody's going to say, we're under the blood. I understand that. Positionally, judicially, our sins will never be brought up. But relationally and practically and personally, we have to answer to God for the way that we live our lives. And that's why John, writing to believers in 1 John, said, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm saying this, when we as believers sin, we have a place where we can rectify that problem, where we can repair that relationship. But if we refuse to go to that place, there is no other place. If we refuse to go to the place of of confession, if we refuse to go to the place of repentance, I'm talking about spiritually in our lives, if we refuse to admit that we're wrong and ask God's forgiveness, we have rejected the only altar there is. There is no other altar. Hebrews writer describing those that had spurned the salvation offer of the Lord Jesus Christ said uh, that if you've rejected that sacrifice, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. What was the Hebrews writer saying? He was saying God ain't interested in those Old Testament sacrifices anymore. He has the sacrifice of His Son. And if you reject that, you can't go back to that old form of worship. There remaineth no more sacrifice. Let me pull that over for us New Testament Gentiles and say this. Standing on the right side of Calvary, saved by His grace, bought by His blood, washed in His mercy, that if we refuse to approach sin the way that God demands that we approach sin, if we refuse to do with our sin what God demands that we do with our sin, then there is nothing else to do with sin. And the Lord stands there at the top of this altar reminding them of their sin and reminding them that it must be dealt with. Notice not only the place the Lord stood, but notice the proclamation the Lord stated. What did He say? He said, Smite the lintel of the door that the post may shake. I find that interesting. You know the place that He smote was the place of entrance to that false temple. Now that's instructive to me. You know what it tells me? It tells me this. God wanted to cut off their access and cure them of their idolatry. He could have destroyed that false temple any way that He wanted, but He started with the door. Why did He start with the door? Lest anybody else run inside and be destroyed with it. You listening? Lest anybody else run inside and be destroyed with it. We'll say a word here in a moment about the people the Lord slew, but you know who died that day? Those inside the temple. Figuratively speaking, we understand this is figurative language that's being given. But God says He wants all of them cut in the head and He'd slay all of them. How'd they get cut in the head? By the falling rubble and debris. What's implied there is this, that those that were inside the temple perished with the temple. It was the mercy and grace of God that He destroyed the door first. Because He didn't want nobody else running inside of it. You know what? In your life and mine, you know why God deals with our sin the way He does? Because He don't want us getting in any worse mess than we have already created for ourselves. That's why the Lord is, is firm. That's why the Lord is, is, uh, is assertive in dealing with our sin. Because He knows left to ourselves, we'll just make things worse. 
It is the mercy of God when He takes a heavy hand to our sin, not the hatred of God. It's not that God's run out of patience. It's that God is long-suffering and merciful. He could allow us to persist in our sin, but instead He's merciful enough to strike down the doorway of our iniquity and to keep us from making things worse. So I noticed the proclamation the Lord stated. Then I noticed the people the Lord slew. He says, cut them in the head. So we know when He says cut cut in the head, He's talking about people because He says cut them in the head. And who was it that got destroyed? It was those inside the idolatrous temple. They were active participants in the idolatry. Listen now, if they hadn't been present, then they wouldn't have been punished. If they hadn't been present, they wouldn't have been punished. You know, those that died that day figuratively, Brother Charlie, were those in the room. You know the best way to avoid that? Don't be in the room. We talk about guilt by association sometimes, and we speak of it as though it is an unjust thing. But sometimes the reason we're associated with uh, with things that uh, portray us as guilty is because we are, in fact, indeed guilty. You know the best way to keep your life clean is to stay as far away from sin as you possibly can. I don't know, and we understand this is a vision. We understand this is figurative language. It's uh, That temple was indeed destroyed by the Assyrians, but the language that's being given here is figurative in nature. And so we understand that it's not that literally that people died in that moment that Amos received that vision. But you can sort of imagine, you know, there might have been folks hanging around just outside that door that got killed along with them. You know how they would have helped been, been helped, Brother Charlie? Don't hang around the door. You know, part of our problem, some of us, we're, we're bewildered while we keep going through the door. And I can tell you right now why we keep going through the door. Because we're hanging around the door. You hang around the door, sooner or later you're going to stumble into it. Talking about sin now. You understand what I'm saying? I'm saying if we hang around close to sin, if we live close to the line, if we get, live close to the boundary, if we flirt with sin, if we allow it an entrance into our life, sooner or later we will become an active participant. There wasn't a single person in that building that didn't get in that building by first getting close to that building. And there ain't a single person that gets out in sin that didn't first get out in sin by getting close to sin. Right? That's just common sense. Well, this ain't deep preaching. You listen to me? People that get in sin got in sin because they first got close to sin. You can't get in it without getting close to it first. Let's try this different. If you're getting in a swimming pool. You with me? If you're getting in a swimming pool. You first got close to that swimming pool. It's just simple. We're not we ain't waiting in deep water, alright? I'm telling you this. The people that he slew were those that were active participants. You know, later on he talks about how he would sift Israel as a nation. Brother Charlie said that not one grain of them would fall to the ground, but he would slay all the wicked men. You know what that means? God does everything justly. And God knew who was involved with it and who wasn't. You know what that should tell us? It should give us encouragement if we note the fact that we're not living in sin. But I'm talking to those of us that might have a little bit of sin in our life that we're flirting with. We ought to be reminded that God knew about it before we ever got in it. And He knows about it right at this very moment. And we cannot escape that knowledge of God. He knows. He knew exactly. So I noticed the place where the Lord stood and the proclamation of the Lord stated and the people the Lord slew. And all this is to suggest that God's saying this, the time of my patience has drawn close. The the time of my mercy is past and you're going to have to answer for the sin that you've committed. I'm talking about these were God's covenant people. I'm talking about these are God's covenant people. I'm talking about if He would do this to Israel, you think that in your life and mine He won't do whatever it takes to purge sin out of our life? We won't have the opportunity for excuse 
on the day when we stand before the Lord. So sin is judged without excuse. Number two, we notice that sin is judged without exception. God says, I'll slay all of them. He said, I will slay the last of them with the sword. Nobody escapes it. You listen to him, nobody escapes it. I'm thankful for the mercy and grace of God. Uh, but understand that in your life and mine, we cannot ex- expect that God will grant an exception to us because of talents we may have, utility that we may have, because of a history or a past that we may have to have endured. Whatever it is, it does not negate the personal culpability and responsibility that we share. Every single one of us, we're going to have to answer for our sin. And there's not a single one of us that will escape that reality. Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, what can I do about that? Well, you can put that stuff under the blood right now. You can ask God's forgiveness. You can repent of it. You can turn from it. But if if you and I persist in our iniquity, there'll come a time that God will have to deal. He'll have to chasten us because of that disobedience. So we see that sin is judged without exception. And then I notice, I'm not going to go through and read all these, but, but I am going to mention them. We notice that sin is judged without escape. He says at the end of verse number 1, He that fleeth of them shall not flee away, and he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Then he goes down the list of talking about things they would try to do to escape the punishment of God that would not work. He says in verse number 2, Though they climb into hell, or dig into hell. He says, Though they climb up to heaven. Verse 3, he says, Though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, which was the highest mountain in that area. He says, Though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea. In verse 4, he says, Though they go into captivity before their enemies. And over and over again, God says, You will not escape my judgment. Judgment upon you. Our sin is going to have to be dealt with. You listening? It's going to have to be dealt with. We can expect that maybe we can endure, or we may try to expect that we can endure our way until we leave this life without having to answer for it. But you know, God says this. The Apostle Paul, writing to believers, said that some men's sin is judged beforehand, and some man's sin goes on before them. In other words, whether it's in this life or the life to come, God's going to deal with that sin. Uh, sometimes God purges and perfects a person's life on this side of the grave. Uh, sometimes uh, He uses tragedy. Sometimes He uses problems. Sometimes He uses uh, any number of calamities to purge and, and to cleanse that sin out of a person's lived behavior. But even if they leave this world without that having happened, uh, they'll stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ and there it will be dealt with. I'm saying we might as well deal with it in the appropriate way now because we're going to deal with it one way or another eventually. The book of Philippians tells us that every knee will bow. And we talk about that to the lost man all the time, and I think that's appropriate. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But but it does say every knee. That's every lost knee, but it's also every saved knee. It's every Baptist knee. It's every independent, King James only, premillennial, mission-minded, soul-winning Baptist knee is going to bow before him one day. That thing's going to have to be dealt with of our stubbornness, of our will, of our disobedience. God will address it. So we find in this passage a glimpse of retribution. And then in verses 5 through 10, we have a glimpse of renunciation. Now here God is laying out just exactly what all will be entailed in this. And I, I don't have time to dwell heavily upon these, so I just, I'll mention them in passing. But look with me at verse number 5. It says, The Lord God of hosts is he that toucheth the land, and it shall melt. And all that dwell therein shall mourn. It shall rise up holy like a flood, and shall be drowned as by the flood of Egypt. Now, God renounces three things concerning Israel in these next verses. 
And I think they are important to note because of the severity of what's implied here. The first is this, there's a renunciation of their place. I don't know if it occurred to you as we read it, but when it says, the Lord God of hosts is He that toucheth the land, it's not saying just any land. It's saying that land. It's saying Israel's land. It's saying Canaan's land. It's saying the promised land. It's saying the place that God chose to set His name there. I'm talking about the place that God had promised to Abraham uh, for his uh, uh, for his descendants and for the nation that would come of him. Could you imagine what it would take for God to turn on Israel? But that's precisely, Brother Charlie, what He says He'd do in this place. That place that God, it's been said before, and I think this is appropriate, that there's only one person in this world that owns a title deed to any piece of land, and it was Abraham. God deeded to him the promised land, gave it to Abraham. Everything else just belongs to the Lord. But here we have God saying, because you have abused the land, because you have polluted it, because you have perverted it, I'm going to touch the land and destroy it. He did, by the way, do that very thing. You know, to this day, Israel doesn't dwell in the land the way that God intended them to. You listening? To this day, they don't dwell in the land the way that God intends them to. And here's the thought I want you to get. They probably thought if anybody had a secure place, it was them. If anybody has a secure place, it's them. But you know, no place is secure enough to withstand the chastening or the wrath of God. Now, you say, well, that's good, preacher. I don't live in the land of Israel. What does that have to do with me? Well, you see, you're in a place, too, by the grace and will of God. Whatever that place is in your life of security, of stability, of leisure, of privilege, wherever it might be in your life, you occupy that by the grace of God. And you might say to yourself, man, couldn't nothing ever change that. But I'd remind you that if God, listen, if God kick Israel out of the land, you think He won't kick you and I out of our comfortable positions? If that's what it takes to get us out of sin. So we see that there was a renunciation of their place. Number two, look down at verse number seven. This is interesting. He says, Are ye not as the children of Ethiopians unto me, O children of Israel? Now, there's two reasons that he uses the Ethiopians as an example. One is because at that time in history, they were idolaters. Uh, They were known uh, worshipers of pagan gods. There's a second reason he uses the Ethiopians. Because the Ethiopians ain't Israelites. What he's essentially saying is this. You're acting like I'm not your God, so I'm going to treat you like you're not my people. Notice the next phrase. He says, have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt? Now, that was true. And here's what Israel said to themselves. They said, there's never been anybody that God's done this for but us. We're a special, privileged group of people. God has not done this for anyone but us. So surely God would not cast us off. What was God's answer to that? He said, and I've also brought up the Philistines from Kaftor. He said, I brought up the Syrians from Kerr. Then he goes on to say, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. You know what he's saying? He's saying, You think because I brought you up out of Egypt that I won't remove away the privileges of the fellowship and communion that you have with me, but you are sadly mistaken. He says the truth is what made the difference between you and these other nations was that you had my law and you kept my law, but because you've rejected my law and because you've rejected the relationship that you had with me, he says, you've rejected me, I'm going to reject you. That's strong language. 
There is a New Testament perspective that I think we must take into account for, and that's that we stand justified in the eyes of God. There is also a truism about the very nature and behavior of God that must not be dismissed as well, and that's that God will allow us to bear the burden and brunt of our disobedience if we persist in it. God will never, we will never not be a child of God. We will never not be a child of God if we are a child of God. But that does not mean that He won't allow us, if we choose to live like a child of hell, to reap some of the heartache and sorrow and toil that comes from living that way. Did the father love the prodigal? Of course he did. Did he stop him from going down the driveway? He didn't. He knew what lay ahead for him. But he did not stop him. He said, if you want to go down that driveway, you'll go out and you'll be treated like a stranger in a foreign land until you finally wake up and see how good that you had it at the Father's house. I see a renunciation of their place, but I see a renunciation of their privileges. He said, I've treated you special, but if you've rejected that status, then I'm going to let you live with that rejection. And I'm going to cast you forth to the nations the same way I would any Gentile kingdom. I'll allow you to be overrun the same way I would any Gentile kingdom because of your sin. Because the thing that made the proprietary thing about Israel was their covenant relationship with God. They'd broke the covenant. They'd turned away from God. They'd cast off true worship. And he says, if you're going to cast that off, I'll let you live with the consequences. Hey, listen, a Christian can fall awful far. When Paul talks about falling uh, falling from grace, Brother Charlie, you and I both know he's not talking about losing your salvation. He's talking about not living up to the standard of the grace of God. But can I say a Christian cannot lose their salvation, but they can sure enough fall a long ways. I've seen people as saved as you and I uh, could have ever hoped to have been whose life was made shipwreck because they chose to walk the path of the course of this world. God allowed them to. We better take it serious. There's a renunciation of their privileges. And then because of that, there's a renunciation of their protection. Verse 8, he says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom. See, he sees what we do. He characterized by the... He didn't say the covenant kingdom. He called it the sinful kingdom. Because they weren't living like a covenant kingdom. They weren't living like a godly kingdom. God calls things for what they are. That's what upsets this world. The God of this world is the devil who's the father of lies. So we live in a time now as the world is more yielded over to His will when just saying true things sparks the ire of the world. You don't even have to be inflammatory. You just say true things and it's enough to cause people to gnash their teeth and to curse you and to want to hurt you. Uh, That's the reason they hate God because God calls things for what they are. They wanted Him to use flowery language, but through the eyes and through the voice and through the ministry of this southern prophet, this farmhand, he calls them a sinful kingdom. He called them what they were. And he said, because of that, I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. Now, somebody might say, well, that's unjust. But here's what he's saying. He's saying that he will remove his protection from the kingdom, from the nation, not from the individuals that in faith believe on him, but from the kingdom and from the nation. That's happened. God is going to resurrect Israel out of the Gentile nations the same way that He pulled Jonah out of the belly of a whale. But that don't mean that to this day and at this moment they are not lost as a nation. They are indeed. There's far more Jews out of the land than there are in the land. Do you hear me? 
they're still scattered to the nations to this day. doesn't mean God's been unfaithful. In fact, God has been precisely faithful to what He said He would do. But it does mean that they as a nation have been scattered. And that's what God said He would do. Verse 9, For lo, I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations like as corn is sifted in a sieve. Yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. He says that the chaff is going to be burnt up, but the grain will be preserved. He's saying those that have believed on the Lord, of course He's going to keep His promises too. Of course He's going to preserve them. Of course they enjoy that relationship with God the same way that you or I as a Gentile would. But He said those who have no more tie to God than merely the blood in their veins or the cultural identity that they enjoy are going to be sifted. They're going to be destroyed. That's what's happened throughout human history. It's what's happened over the last uh, 1940 years or 70 years uh, since uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. They've been sifted among the nation. God said, I will remove your protection. Now somebody's going to say, Preacher, God never do that to a New Testament saint. Well, I remember a time in the book of Luke. You know where I'm going? Well, God looked at one of His own disciples. And He said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've told him he can't do it. My Bible don't read that way. But I have withheld his hand of sifting. That's not what it says. But I have miraculously, Peter, plucked you out of the sieve. That's not what it says. He said, but I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. When thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. He didn't say, I'm going to keep you from being sifted, Peter. But he did say, I'm going to make sure that that which is worth keeping survives and that which needs to be lost is purged. God will absolutely do that to a New Testament Christian. He'll let you drop right off into the sieve. And why does he do that? He does that so that that which is worthless, that which is meaningless, that which is unprofitable can be destroyed. But that which is worth something will survive. God's just that faithful. He's just that just. So I see in this passage a glimpse of renunciation. But I'm glad it don't stop there. I'm glad, Brother Charlie, it goes a little further. In verse 11, God starts making some promises. They are restoration promises. So we see a glimpse of renunciation. But then in closing, we see a glimpse of restoration. Now, each of these things are said as regards Israel as a nation. But there is also, I think, a practical application to you and I. Look at verse 11 with me. He says, in that day, By the way, this is prophetically speaking. It looks beyond just the Syrian invasion of the northern ten tribes and looks to the day when the Lord of glory sits on the throne in Jerusalem. We know that because of what it says in verse 11. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof and I will raise up his ruins and I will build it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all of the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. Now the tabernacle, it doesn't say the tabernacle of worship, it doesn't say the tabernacle in the wilderness, it says the tabernacle of David. It's talking about the house of David. You know, when Christ was robed in flesh and born of a virgin's womb, the house of David was in pretty pitiful shape. In fact, Brother Charlie, the last sign of the house of David was a carpenter, and the last heir was a young Jewish woman. That was all that was left until Jesus entered a virgin's womb and was born into this world. Likewise, Brother Charlie, that's how it's going to be during the tribulation 
The house of Judah is going to be in pretty sore disrepair. The lineage of David is going to be all but obliterated. But known only to God are His mysterious works and wisdom. The King, the Son of David, the King of kings, the heir of Jerusalem's throne is going to return in power and in glory to assume that throne and to rebuild that place. Now, what does all this mean to you and I? Here's what God's saying. He's saying, I have allowed the house of David to fall into disrepair. But he said, I'm not done. The privileges that have been renounced are going to be restored. You know what I'm glad? And we could associate it with two things here. One is the Lord and the land. God says, I'm going to put the Lord back on the throne. I'm going to put the land back in your possession in verses 11 and 12. But it's a reminder to me that what has been lost can be gained back. Those privileges we've enjoyed, uh, that, that close relationship with God that we have enjoyed that has been robbed us by sin can be restored. We'll just come back to Him. You might look at it and say, Preacher, my house is in a mess. Yeah, so was David's. So was David's. So was Israel's. God says, I'm going to restore that back. You might say, Preacher, my spiritual house is in disrepair. My relationship with God is in disrepair. My prayer life is in pieces. My study life is all but dead. My relationship with the Lord, my sensitivity to the Spirit of God, my communion with Him, it's all a mess. Yeah, that may be true, but guess what? God can give back that which the canker worm hath eaten and that which the caterpillar hath eaten. God can give back the years which have been taken from us. I'm not saying He's going to add more years onto your life, although He did it for Hezekiah. He could do it for you if He wanted to. But I'm saying that which has been lost can be gained back. What happened when the prodigal returned home? He said, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. The father said, hush with that. Bring me a ring and bring me a robe and bring me shoes and slay the fatted calf. Because he didn't say, this my servant was dead and is alive again. He said, this my son, which was dead, is alive again. My son that was lost is now found. He didn't say, I lost a son and I got a different one back. He didn't say, I lost a son and I got a lesser one back. He said, the one that was lost is the one that is found again. I'm glad there's a way back. So we see the privileges are restored. Number two, the prosperity is restored. In other words, if the first has to do with the Lord and the land, then the second has to do with blessing and bounty. He says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper. In other words, before they could get one harvest fully reaped, it would already be time to put another one in the ground. And the man with the plow would be overtaking those that are still left trying to gather the, the, the bumper crop, the bountiful harvest from the year before. God says, that's how I'm going to bless you. you. You know what we could maybe call that? We could maybe call that unbroken blessings. Wouldn't you think? I mean, still picking up the goodness of God lay around on the ground, Brother Larry, and God's already trying to give them more. Man, that's how God wants to bless His children. I'm not saying you won't have hard times, but I'm saying even in the midst of those hard times, God has the ability to bless us so much that we ain't even got time to pick it all up off the ground. He's been so good to us. That's how God wants our relationship to be. He wants us to be living in His favor and enjoying His blessing and relationship. So we see Israel's prosperity restored. And then finally, and I'm done, look at verse 15. He says this, I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them. You see, that's how I know this is still future. That's not true of Israel today. They're not planted in their land right now. They're, they're not in a place where they cannot be pulled up out of their land. In fact, during the tribulation period, that's exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. He's going to drive them into the caves and the rocks and the hills and the mountains. 
But God says there's coming a day that I'm going to plant them upon their land. They shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Their protection was restored. So their privileges has to do with the Lord and the land. Their prosperity had to do with blessing and bounty. But here their protection is restored. It has to do with security and stability. You know, it's a reminder of this. Though we may go through traumatic experiences, some of you all have been through traumatic experiences in your Christian life. Some of you have probably spent months, years even out of the will of God, and you have experienced, drunk the dregs of the world and of sin's consequences. And, you know, when you're in that environment, sometimes it's easy to grow insecure in your relationship with the Lord and feel as though when you get back close to God, you're just a heartbeat away from losing that fellowship that you once had. But can I tell you this? If we're willing to be close to Him, He sure enough wants to be close to us. We don't have to live so precariously in our life. We don't have to live so precariously in our Christian walk. I'm not saying we be cavalier, but I am saying that there is a confidence we can enjoy that God desires to be close to us. He ain't just keeping us around waiting to kick us out, Brother Fred. He enjoys fellowship with And if we'd be willing to be close to Him, He sure enough wants to be close to us. I'm glad what we've lost can be gotten back. How do we do that? Well, if we confess our sins, we'll bring it all back around, won't we? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Don't wait to deal uh, deal with your sin until the Lord's standing up over top of it, getting ready to tear the house down. Go ahead and deal with it now and let your life be close and clean and in communion with Him. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. And I want you to just go ahead and obey the Lord. Go ahead and respond to Him. You don't have to wait for the first note to be played. If He's spoken to your heart, go ahead and just speak to Him. Deal with Him. Meet Him in this altar and let Him work in your life. Father, I pray that You bless this invitation, that Your people get help from You, and that Christ would be magnified. It's in His name we ask it.